I invite your attention to the screen. I'm going to have uh, Karen Hale read our scripture today from uh, 1 Samuel. First Samuel chapter 12, verses 19 to 25. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Thank you, Karen. We're going to be looking today at a uh, large subject, and it's one that is uh, it's complex in the Bible, and this is the concept of fear. Now, if you look at fear through Scripture, you're going to find... Uh, really two different types. You're going to find one that is quite natural, and uh, that is the one that we're pretty familiar with, with terror, and and then one that's a little bit more kind of like, I don't know, dread. So think of dread as, you know, the feeling that you have a term paper tomorrow, and it's not due. Right, guys? And, um, and so you have this sense of impending dread. It's not so emotional. It's not adrenaline rush. But it's something that you see a danger, whether it's, it's social or academic, and you move to, to somehow change that. Now, contrast that to a physical sort of terror, um, such as my wife heard a couple months ago. She, she all heard this, this scream of terror coming from the backyard. And, of course, she went to check it out. And it wasn't one of our kids. It was, it was actually one of the neighbor's children. And uh, maybe a seven-year-old girl. And what had happened is this um, rather large, probably six, seven-month-old puppy, uh, black, you know, big, just had gotten through their fence and was just like bounding merrily after her. And this little girl was just like screaming and fleeing in terror. So, so the emotion was there, the adrenaline was up, the, the running was there. Um, and so we understand those types of fear. And I, and I would call those natural fear. And scripture has a lot of accounts of natural fear. We have sailors that are terrified of these storms that come upon them. Uh, we have the instance of Moses, the, the prophet of God, where he had, um, he had killed a man and uh, in defense of his countryman, he thought. And uh, then he found out that the Pharaoh knew about it, and he was afraid. And so he removed himself from that danger. Um, whenever an angelic being appears to a human, uh, they have this, this terror they just like fall on their faces. The psalmists have fear all the time. In fact, one of our songs referenced it, that we will not fear. And, and, and scripture tells us how we can be delivered from natural fear. The psalmist says, fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. 
And so I would call these things the natural kind of fear, but I'd like to not focus on it. I'd rather focus on the 80% of times in Scripture where the object of it is God. And I think something tells us in our hearts that God does not want us to be terrified of him. You know, to, to melt in a puddle before him. But what exactly does it mean to have the fear of God, or we could say godly fear? So as a, a tour guide, I've, I've hired uh, the prophet Samuel uh, that Karen just read for us. And uh, Samuel's kind of recounting his ministry. And, uh, and so he's telling them that they have sinned because they have asked for a king so that they could be like the other nations, which was a great sin against God. And, and so then he wraps up his defense with, with these words, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, as they had in demanding a king, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So the first thing that Samuel does is he, he I, I search for a word here, enjoins them. Now, I don't like that word enjoin, but what it means, it means to urge strongly. And it's not really a command, it's not really just an urge, it's certainly not a recommendation. He is saying, be sure to fear the Lord. And so, we're going to use these phrases of Samuel, be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully, and then the warnings that he gives as kind of a tour of godly fear. Okay, so, let's touch on some of the high parts, uh, points of godly fear that we find through scripture. One of them we find in 2 Kings chapter 17. And uh, here we have a strange case of a group of Jewish expatriates that have been taken to Assyria and then resettled. And they come back and we find out that these folks were still worshiping God. And we see this in verse 33 of um, 2 Kings 17. And it says, so they feared the Lord. Well, that's good, right? To fear the Lord. But there's one problem. It says, but they also served other gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they'd been carried away. So how did God take this? Well, he tells us in verse 34, to this day they do according to their former manner, they do not fear the Lord. So in other words, it, we get these, this use where it actually kind of shifts. So it says they fear the Lord, in other words, they worship him. Yet, they do not fear the Lord. In other words, they do not worship him exclusively. And God says, that is no fear at all. And uh, what we have here is a cluttered, non-exclusive sort of worship, which all of us could possibly be in danger of. So here we are, we could be here this morning, singing to God, worshiping, yet have our hearts cluttered with idols. Things that we... Um, they absorb our imagination. They absorb our hearts. We ask them to fulfill the role of God in our lives. And so, godly fear, you can fear the Lord, i.e. worship him, sing, pray, read your Bibles. Yet, if it is not exclusive, it is not godly fear. We find also in the Psalms uh, examples that godly fear is not just exclusive, it's reverent and it's loving. So in Psalm chapter 5, verse 7, the psalmist says this, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. And so these kinds of verses are the things that show us that godly fear is not terror, right? So we have a psalmist here who is recognizing that 
the abundance of God's love draws him to the house of the Lord where he bows in reverence toward the holy temple. And so we have a person here who recognized both the, the abundant love of God that draws him to the temple, but when he's there, he bows down in reverence because this is a holy, it says, place. And so, so godly fear is not just exclusive, it's also reverent and, and loving. We do find out as, as scripture unfolds that we, we obviously don't have a temple. This is not a temple as they had, a, a central place where God was especially present, where people would come. Uh, but we do have Jesus Christ saying that if you, if you tear down this temple, referring to his own body, I will raise it up again. And so Jesus says, he is the temple. And then later on, when he grants us the Holy Spirit that lives in all those who believe in him, we find out that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so every time, and then he goes on to say even further that the, the church of God, all of his people everywhere are a house, the house of God, and each one of us are living stones. And so where does this reverence that we see in the Psalms come from? Well, every time we get before God, even as individuals, we have the temple of the Holy Spirit within us. And so we come to him in reverence as we come together as in the house of God built by these living stones. We come in the same sort of manner, in a reverent way. Godly fear includes a sense of awe as well. And Pastor Champ read Deuteronomy chapter 4, where Moses was kind of recounting this young nation. So Israel had come from slavery, and God brought them to this mount, Mount Sinai, or Horeb, where he gave them, <clears throat> excuse me, gave them the law. And so in this young nation, he's going he's to form their identity. And he does this. He says, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And as they came near, they saw this mountain burning with fire and darkness and gloom, and God speaking. So you kind of get this, this idea that God went through a lot of pains to get this setting, where he said, okay, come, people, gather. Do you remember in, in like high school when you all of a sudden they say, yeah, we're going to have a gathering, and you're like, ooh, what's that? So you get out of first period, and you all come together, like, what, what's going to happen here? Well, not only do they gather, they stand. And then as they stand, they have this display of, of all this gloom and fire and, and everything, and then this voice comes out that they hear. And, and, and why did God do that? So that they may learn to fear me and teach their children so. And... That is a sense of awe that these people had that took that lesson and cemented it in their mind. Now, that, that sense of awe is difficult for us to, to grasp, isn't it? Uh, but it wasn't for them because they saw it and they heard it. You know, we quickly learn that the impact of a spoken word changes with the setting, right? So if, if as a parent you say to your child, hey, knock that off, don't do that, that's different than go to your room, Wait for me. I'll be up in a bit. Well, that changes everything, doesn't it? That means, okay, I better listen. And it prepares them to receive this word, hopefully. All right. And so we find out that it's not only exclusive, reverent, loving, full of awe, but it's also 
a something, the fear of God or godly fear is something that becomes your identity. We have a very interesting passage in uh, Genesis 31 where a man named Isaac, and Isaac is one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, one of the patriarchs is God has given this title, the fear of Isaac. That's interesting. So what that means is that God is the one that Isaac fears, or it may even mean that the fear of God, Isaac's God, goes out before him. And there are even instances where people steered clear of Isaac because Isaac had a big God. And so what's my point here? The fear of God identifies you. It makes you separate. You become a person who is known for the fear of God. In fact, sometimes there are even people who were not uh, believers. They were not Christians at the time. Uh, in Acts, we see a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion. And this was before he was, was baptized, before he even knew the name of Christ. But it was said of him that he feared God. It says he was a devout man who feared God with his household, and it showed by the way that he gave generously to people and prayed continually to God. And so the question is, do people say that of you? Now, actually, the Old Testament concept of fear is very much the New Testament concept of faith. Are you a person of faith? Are you someone that your ethics and your dealings and your life practices and the way you spend your money, do they all point to the fact that you have faith slash you fear God? Now, Samuel goes on to say that um, he says, only fear the Lord, okay? Only fear the Lord, and then he says, and serve him faithfully. Now, the point here is that fear of God never is alone. It's not an abstract thing. It's a very concrete thing. Um, and so service and holy living are part and parcel of fearing God. That's the result. And so here are two ways, service to God and holy living. Both of these are the way that godly fear expresses itself. So if this is true about me, I am going to serve God with my entire life. If this is true about me, my life will be holy. Uh, sometimes we see, in the, as you read through Scripture, you'll see people who fear God that uh, they did so at great risk. One example are the Hebrew midwives. Now, this was when Egypt, um, Israel were slaves in Egypt, and the Pharaoh was getting kind of concerned about the, the rate at which they were multiplying. And so he instructed the Hebrew midwives to kill the baby boys as they are born. Well, they refused to do so. Exodus 1 says, They feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And then it says, And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And so they did this at great personal risk, and God bless them, because fear always has service connected to it. The Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus said, I live always to do the will of my Father. And in the prophets, in Isaiah, we, have, we find the same thing. We find out that the anointed one, the Messiah, he is going to come with the spirit of the Lord resting upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. In other words, the identifying mark of this anointed one who has the spirit of God resting upon him is that he will have a life of service. He will always do the will of the Father. Not just service, but holy living. 
Fearing and proper living are virtually synonymous. And there are many, many examples of this. I'm just going to list a few of them up here on the screen. And so as you're reading scripture, every time you see the fear of God, you'll see an action after it. Don't take advantage of the helpless, we learn in Leviticus, but fear the Lord. Leviticus 25, you shall not do wrong to one another, but you shall fear the Lord. We looked at 2 Kings with the Samaritans. It says, they do not fear, they do not follow. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, it may be more than that, but it's not less than that. And so, if you fear the Lord, you will hate evil. Exodus 20, God's fear will be before you that you may not sin. And then in Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis 21, we have Abraham, one of the patriarchs, where he came upon a group of people, and uh, he said to himself, there is no fear of God in this place. And so what he conclu- concludes, <clears throat> excuse me, is that they are going to kill him and take his wife. In other words, there is no basic morality there. Pardon me. Testing, testing. All right, we're back. I knew I shouldn't have taught Sunday school, too. Just yelling at those fifth graders, you know, just took it right out of me. And so, uh, basically, Abraham concluded that these folks don't have the fear of God. There's no basic morality here. They're going to kill me and take my wife from me. And uh, so this should just remind us, guys, that, that faith without works is dead. If you have the fear of God, you will, you, it will show in the way that we act. Um, so, I mean, just the question is, like, how, how are, your, are your ethics? This is, this is the way that we live out there, right? So if we're, say, cheating company time, if we're taking undue credit from our coworkers, if we're making sales based on withholding information, uh, these, are, these are our ways that we show that we fear God when we have ethics that align with justice. Now, we may be saying, okay, okay, so I get this. All right, so godly fear is like, you know, it is, it is full of awe and, and it's obedience and it's, it's exclusive worship and, and so it's going to be connected with service. And so now the question arises, um, so how do I cultivate this? Well, Samuel gives us a hint on that as well. He says, consider what great things he has done for you. And then he gives them a warning, don't be swept away. So I'm going to say, if, if you and I want to consider godly, you know, we want to cultivate godly fear in our life, we need to do two things. We need to consider the great works of God, and we need to take his warnings very, very seriously. So um, Samuel says, consider what great things. Now, if you read that whole passage there, he recounts how God took them out of Egypt. And in, in the Old Testament, the exodus from Egypt, where they became a nation of slaves into a nation loved by God, is... The great redemptive act. It parallels the cross in the New Testament. And, um, and God did this by kind of like showing them, um, he had these partings of waters several different times. So in Exodus, um, right at the beginning there, 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in him and in his servant Moses. And so what God had done was he had, he had helped them escape the pursuing Egyptian army by splitting the Red Sea. And uh, then, so they watched this army destroyed, and it says, and they feared. I bet they did. But this was all part of God's delivering them. And in the, in the worship of Israel, time and time again, God looks back, they look back at these, um, these redemptive events. There was another one a little bit later where God parted the Jordan River for them so they could enter the promised land. And so they built this big pile of rocks, and they said, when your children say, what's this big pile of rocks? They say, that the nations around you may know that you have a mighty God and that your children may fear. Okay, so, so God took them out of Egypt with a parting, and he brought them into the promised land with a parting, and these were some of the redemptive works that they were supposed to rehearse. And so as you're reading scriptures, like, for instance, Psalm um, 106, over and over they rehearse these great redemptive acts. Now, of course, you and I can rehearse these great redemptive acts, but we, you and I know that, that the great redemptive act, the way that we were delivered from a life of slavery into the promised land was where? At the cross, at the cross of Christ. So we are called to consider that. And if you just want to say, I want to cultivate the fear of God in my life, the place to start is the cross of Christ. Because if you look at the perfect life of Jesus, and you look at the great things at which he suffered with my sin on his shoulders, and then the great deliverance wherewith we were delivered, we will begin to fear God. We know that um, subsequent kings of Israel, they had their own pile of rocks, except it was paper. Um, Every single king was supposed to have a special copy of the law made for him. And he was supposed to be with him, it said, all the time, and he was supposed to read it so that he could learn to fear. Thankfully, when you come and you gather with God's people, some of these reflections are already built in. Most of the songs that we sing about are about our deliverance, about the cross. Every time we see a baptism, that is an expression of death to life. Every time we take the Lord's Supper together, what are we doing? We are remembering. We are remembering. So simply by being here with the people of God, you are beginning to cultivate the fear of God. So that is a step that you and I can take. So we are supposed to consider what great things he has done, but also we're supposed to take warnings to heart. So Samuel kind of ends this in a little bit of a threatening way. He says, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. A little bit dismissive there. Um, you know, really dread or terror of judgment is not misplaced for sinners. Proverbs warns us about choosing folly over wisdom. Because they hated knowledge, did not choose the fear of the Lord, have none of my counsel, despise my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of of their way. You know, sinners, which all of us are, who reject the knowledge of God, refuse to fear God, do not want to listen to his word, do not listen to the reproof of the word, says that it will come upon them, this destruction will come upon them. And it's what they chose, it's what they deserve. And so, guys, this is something that is, is scary. Even in Hebrews, we see in the New Testament, it says it is a fearful or a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So whenever you see the living God, it means the God who sees. He sees everything, hears everything, knows everything, and he's not dead like those idols. You will stand before him. So 
Psalm 119, 120 kind of arrests my attention because I'm thinking like, okay, so I as a believer, as somebody who loves God, how, how do I, you know, how does this work? How am I supposed to, do, do I tremble before God? I understand as a sinner, I ought to tremble before God, but I'm a redeemed sinner. So how does the fear of the Lord work? Psalm 119, 120 kind of arrested my attention because in it, you have a righteous man. Now, if ever there was a lover of the word of God, it's the guy who wrote Psalm 119. I forget how many verses it is. It is the longest chapter in scripture. It is like a love poem to the law of God, you know, where it takes each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and, uh, and writes these, these sections, these poems. And, um, and this guy, this guy loves God, and he speaks of the loving mercy of God all the time. He also speaks about how the wicked will be washed away. And after kind of meditating on what it means to live a distinctive life, uh, he says these words here. My flesh trembles for fear of you. Now, elsewhere in scripture, that same word for trembles um, is used like, it's like my, my hair stands up on end. My flesh crawls. Okay, trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Well, here's a man who loves God. He's written the love letter to God's law, and he speaks of the steadfast love and mercy of God all the time, but then as he contemplates the prospect that awaits evildoers, he is positive that he does not want to be among them. Um, So as you and I, we ponder the, the judgments of God. So a judgment is something that God has declared. It is something that does not move for man or woman. And so when you and I look at a judgment of God or a statue of God and we say, no, I am going to step right across that, we have reason to fear. So if you look at Scripture, the way of the transgressor is hard. Evil friends corrupt good ma- manners. Adultery leads to the chambers of death. The wicked will perish. You look at these things that God has said, no, this is a law. This is the way it works. And as I stand there as a person redeemed before God, and I look at this line here, these judgments of God that move for no man or no woman, I tremble. I do not want to put myself of stepping across those things because I do not want to be numbered among those that are wicked. One commentator says pretty boldly, fearing God is becoming so acutely aware of his moral purity and his power, his omnipotence, that one is genuinely afraid to disobey him. God himself speaks favorably to those who tremble at his word. In Isaiah 66, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We're just going to leave these, uh, there's a whole, whole number of verses here. Uh, Jesus says, I tell you, friends, whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Philippians, Philippians 2.12 says that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But when I look at these things, I I learn that my sanctification or my my becoming like, in fact, what I've been declared to be at salvation, uh, these are not, as uh, John Piper says, these are not pointless words. Uh, There is an element of fear. I was trying to think about what does it feel like to tremble 
at the Word of God. I don't know, is that common to you? I don't often tremble at the Word of God, but I do remember a particular time where it hit me like a ton of bricks that I had broken the law of God, and I felt literally sick. And uh, I was, I was uh, you guys who were in school would know this, I, I had like, it was, I, forget, I think it was like a history of civilization test or something where I was trying to compare to, and I didn't, and I was sitting there with a mental block, and I looked over, and, and I saw somebody's answer, and it was a good one. And I thought about it. And I put some variation on that. And I remember when I did that, I realized I could not take that back. The Bible says not to steal. And I had just stolen. Now, I realized at that moment, like, I didn't doubt God's love and his forgiveness. That God could forgive me for that thing. But I did realize that I was going to have to make amends. And that if I didn't, I would become hard and callous to sin. And at that moment, I began to shake. Why? Why? Well, there are things that we should fear as believers. And I was kind of looking for some guidance on, on this question, like, what, what, does the, what is a believer in God? Somebody who loves God, who is redeemed by Christ, what do we fear? Well, I was turned to a, a man who knows something about fear. And uh, this is the you know, 500th year of the, of the Reformation. And uh, many of you know who Martin Luther is, uh, one of the great reformers. And uh, Martin Luther was a man who early in his life, he feared God and not in a healthy way. Like, I mean, hair shirts and, and whips and locking himself. And just, I mean, like he was terrified of the judgment of God because he did not understand the grace of Christ at that time. But when he was freed, he still had just a certain earthy way about him. And I was reading his prayers, and here's what he prayed. Enter not into judgment against us, because no man living is justified before you. Do not look at how good or wicked we have been, but only on the infinite compassion bestowed in Christ. Lead us not into temptation. Keep us alert, so as to avoid complacency by which Satan surprises us, and deprives us of thy precious word. I saw some things in this, in this prayer of his that shows what I should, as a believer, fear. I should, believe my, I should fear my own self-righteousness. Like, if, if, if God were to let Evan have his way, and, and on my own merits I presented myself before God, I would not be justified in his sight. And so I fear my own self-righteousness. Uh, he says, do not lead me into temptation. Now, God does not lead into temptation, but the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, right? But, so I fear being put in a position, whereas I crumble under the temptation of sin. He says, avoid complacency. Keep us alert so we avoid complacency that leads to sin. He feared sin. He says, and the deprivation of the word of God. Isn't it true that when you sin, the next time it's a little bit easier? And a little bit easier. And a little bit easier. And I fear the hardening of my heart and the deception of sin and the fact that I could stray to some point that I hurt everybody around me and I hurt my God and that he would actually turn me over to my own sin. That is something that you and I need to fear. You know, I can't say that I know exactly how all of this works, 
How should we both love grace and mercy and fear? But I know that they, we really cannot understand mercy until we understand fear. Is that not true? How can God be the friend that we most fear, as a songwriter wrote way, way back? You know, I was wondering if like the, 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 pro, the concept of proximity would help. I want you to just imagine a hurricane. And we've seen a few recently. And uh, this is not a Category 5. This is a Category 10. It's apocalyptic. It covers the entire world. There is no way to flee it. In fact, the further out you flee, the stronger its arms are. And so you fear this thing. you You are doomed. And then you find out that there is a way to be conveyed to the center or the eye of this hurricane where there is peace. And so you take this, this offer of conveyance to the eye of the hurricane, and it gets you there safely, and you stand there in the eye of this hurricane, in this calm, while this massive power swirls around you. Imagine that you think, like, should I go, should I go back out there? Of course not. Of course not, because the only place is to be safe in the heart, in the eye of it. Now, this illustration is limited in so many ways, but... What I'm trying to illustrate is the only safe place from God's wrath is close to his heart. And that he has given us the way to convey to there through Jesus Christ. And that we would be foolish to step out into the place where there is no safety. And he invites us in. Over and over, you will find as you read scripture, he says, choose life over death. Choose blessing over curse. Choose wisdom over folly. And yes, Choose the fear of God, or godly fear, over terror. And so I ask the question, won't you choose life? I have a few possibility things, questions here that we can just ask ourselves. So first of all, a very wise man says this, The fear of the Lord leads to life. Whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. That is the promise of God. And so as we think about, do I fear God? Are these things true of me? I'm aware of potential idols in my life. Is my worship exclusive? Do I approach God reverently? Or am I somewhat flippant about it? Am I in awe of the cross? Would people conclude that I fear God? And then finally, I take God's word, I consider and his warnings seriously. Let's choose life. Let's choose the fear of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your gracious warnings. We thank you for your heart that invites us to come to Christ. And Lord, we thank you so much that we can be people who are identified as ones that fear you, that love you. And so, Lord, I pray now that if there's any here today that... This is a new concept, and they know you only in the terms of being afraid of you or even dreading you. I pray that today would be the day that they take you at your word, that they come to you, and they find safety uh, close to your heart. Lord, I pray that you would make us a distinctive people, a people that as we go out from here, uh, people would look at us and say, that's a person of faith, but even more, that person fears you. Lord, I pray that you would, 
helps us take these warnings seriously. Lord, that this would stop us from doing things that would be harmful to us, to be harmful toward uh, your testimonies. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.